come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 56 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be Italian Horror number 7, as I have featured reviews of The Visitor, which is, you know, going along with Italian Horror Month here, where Sputnik is going to be the other featured review, is not, as that's from Russia, but I thought it paired up well with The Visitor, as these kind of have that, you know, space sci-fi type feel to it, so I thought they would kind of work pretty well here together, especially because they are dealing with aliens on top of that as well. And then for mini-reviews, as I already said, I was going to do two 1960s Italian horror films, as I watched Blood and Roses for the second time, as well as watching The Vampire and the Ballerina, and then I also have many reviews of Marabito, Amulet, and Flatliners from 2017. As this also has been kind of an interesting week for me, as I got to watch as much as I kind of was hoping I could. But I also did, you know, had Thanksgiving as one of the things there. And I also asked my beautiful girlfriend of Jamie to marry me as well. So that kind of... I had some time where I thought I was going to be able to watch a few more things, but didn't get around to it. But I think everything is going to be working out just well for, you know, what I have here on this episode for you. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is I'm going to, you know, get away from this intro here. I'm going to kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Why? 
And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be Blood and Roses from 1960. This went by the original title of Et Mort de Plaisir. This is directed by Roger Vendum, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Roger Valiant. And this is from the original story from Claude Brulé and Claude Martin, and then from the novel by Sheridan Lee Fanu. This stars Mel Ferrer, Elsa Martinelli, and Annette Stroiberg. This is a drama horror romance film that is a co-production from Italy and France. This is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a lonely and bitter young heiress, jealous of her cousin's engagement to another woman, becomes dangerously obsessed with legends surrounding a vampire ancestor who supposedly murdered the young brides of the man that she loved. Now, this is a film that I first heard about when I was working through my list of horror films to see, you know, to round out my viewing before kind of making some lists. And I decided to give this a rewatch as part of my journey through the aughts, as it also kind of linked up with Italian Horror Month and, you know, synced where I could do both at the same time. Now, we start this off a little bit here with some voiceover narration telling us that we're in a modern world and that no one believes in the supernatural anymore. Now, the woman states that despite this, vampires are still alive. They're just lying dormant, including herself. And this is actually the voice of Stroiberg that we're hearing. And the players that we're really dealing with here are Leopold de Karstein, who is Ferrer. And then we also have his fiancée, who is Georgia Monteverdi, who is Martinelli. And then the cousin that we're dealing with is Carmilla, portrayed by Stroiberg. Now... The beginning of everything that we're dealing with here is that they have hired a guy who's going to set up fireworks and he wants to do this in the abbey behind the house but it, that's also revealed to be a cemetery where they used to house the ancestors of the family it is here that we actually learn that they used to be vampires until 1765 when they were supposedly all wiped out except one this is there's a painting of this one remaining vampire of milanka who is the vampire in question and she looks a lot like carmilla the story then tells that this vampire killed all of her cousin's fiancés because she could not be with him. And then Carmilla we see as being antisocial and is pretty upset because she does truly love Leopold, but he truly loves Georgia and while he still has a close connection with her. Now to create kind of a stir, she puts on the wedding dress of her ancestor and then when the fireworks go off, there were actually some German explosives still inside the Abbey, and those go off. And from here, Carmilla thinks that she is being beckoned by the spirit of Milanka to help be taken over there. And we get some more voiceover narration with that. But then when people start to mysteriously turn up dead, is there really a vampire, or is this more of a psychosis that Carmilla is dealing with? Now that's where I really kind of want to leave my recap of this movie, as... 
I did learn that this movie is, as I said, taking this novel and then putting it in a modern setting. I think it's an interesting piece of cinema as well. Carmilla, much like her ancestor, who she thought to be a vampire, loves her cousin. He doesn't love her in the same way anymore. They were very close as children, but grew apart, and now he loves Georgia. She wants to be friends with Carmilla, which to an extent they are, but Carmilla will always, you know, have that jealous side there because she wants to be with Leopold. I feel that they really... Is vampires here or not? I personally don't think that there is. I feel like though we are hearing this voiceover narration during the middle of this movie where Carmilla is actually hearing this and I think this is more of mental illness type thing. Now they do show us a few things here and there like there is brought up that if a vampire touches a rose it will wilt and die immediately so we do get to see a little bit of that but I honestly don't feel that we are actually getting a vampire here. I think it's just Carmilla has you know been broken mentally and this is her only way of coping with things is to try to live out how her ancestor of Milanka was dealing with things back then. Now this one doesn't really necessarily go so much into lesbianism like I believe I've heard the novel does because women are being targeted here but by eliminating them it is just trying to put herself in the position to be with Leopoldo. Now aside from that this does have some interesting art house aspects to it. We get a scene where Carmilla thinks that she has blood in her dress and it causes her to freak out to the point where she breaks down and breaks the mirror as well. And then we get another image here where Georgia's having a nightmare. I thought this was kind of cool because most of this is black and white except there is some red that is there but that is intentionally done to make it pop. And there's also something with looking out of a window and there is a swimming pool outside of a, immediately so they can swim around and this stuff. I thought it was kind of a cool effect they were playing with there. I thought the cinematography was really good. I thought the acting was pretty solid. I think Ferrer plays this interesting role here where he does love his cousin. He thinks that they can still be as close as they were, but she knows that's no longer possible. And I don't think that he is wrong or doing anything wrong here. Stroyberg does a great job at playing this mentally disturbed woman who doesn't know who she is or what she should do. Martinelli and the rest of the cast round this out for what was needed. I think the soundtrack really works where they're going here. They use a lot of harp in it, which I think adds a kind of interesting element. And I also feel like we get a timeless vibe that this movie is trying to give off. We're in a modern world, but we're exploring things of the past. And I think the sound design helps there. I do think this movie is lacking just a little bit. It does fly in with a 75 minute runtime. I think if they would have extended and kind of deepened the story just a little bit, I might have been able to come in a little bit higher. I still enjoyed this movie though, even after the second viewing. And I think this is, like I said, an interesting kind of film here. It's just lacking a little bit for me. So I came in with a seven out of 10 on this movie. And my second review is going to be another 1960s film of The Vampire and the Ballerina. This is going by the original title of La Mante del Vampiro. This is directed by Renato Paulcelli, who also co-wrote and came up with the story along with Ernesto Gastaldi and Giuseppe Pellegrini. This stars Helena Remy, Tina Goliani, and Walter Brandi. This is a horror film that is from Italy and currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis here being a troop of beautiful young dancers find themselves stranded in a sinister, spooky old castle not knowing that it is a home to a group of vampires. Now, that synopsis is a little bit misleading, but before I kind of delve into that and what this is really about is, this is another one that I decided, that I said on the previous episode that I was going to watch for the journey through the aughts as well as sticking with Italian horror. This one had an interesting title, and I believe somebody on Instagram also recommended this to me. And I'm pretty sure I heard about this at first on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror. But aside from that, I came in pretty blind. Now, we get a young woman named Briganti who 
goes out in the middle of the night to get some water for their farm and gets attacked by something. Now, some of the townspeople come to save her, and they end up taking her to the professor who lives nearby, of, who's portrayed by Pierre Ugo Granani. Now, staying with him is a group of ballerinas. Now, it seems there's a guy named Luca who is Isacaro Oravavoli that is supporting them. Now, they're going to be doing a show in the area from what I gather. And then with them also is Giorgio, who is Gino Torini. And he plays the piano and helps them set up their routines. Now, two of the dancers that are kind of featured here are Francesca, who is Tina Gloriani, and she's dating Luca. Now, she is worried that he's not with them because she's afraid he will cheat on her. And then she's also seems good friends with Luisa, who is Remy, and she is seeing Giorgio. Now, the professor does relay some information that this is the third attack like this, all during the full moon. There is a local legend of vampires that he shares with these dancers. Now, the ones that end up getting stranded in this castle is Luca shows up and him, Francesca, Luisa, and Giorgio end up trying to get away from a storm and they seek refuge in this castle where they meet a Countess Alda, as well as Herman, who is portrayed by Brandi, who, he is actually a vampire and we see that he's quite hideous and he lures Luisa away and then attacks her. And then she's not feeling well, but she does survive and they go back to the professor's place and pretty soon after these men have to do what they can to get her back as she is drawn back to Herman. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap as this movie doesn't have the most complex story, but that doesn't, isn't always a bad thing. Now we have these vampires that are plaguing a small village in the area that feels a lot like Dracula. Now to delve a bit more into this vampire aspects, they're pretty common for the most part. They have all the weaknesses you come to expect and that is fine. I even like that they're a nobility even though the surrounding area doesn't realize that they're actually still there. And it is interesting that we're getting something like Dracula from the 1992 version is that Herman is ugly looking, but when he feeds it makes him younger. I like this idea that Alda feeds from him, so it is really Herman that looks this way. I'm assuming this is probably easier just because they could keep doing him up in these effects instead of having to do two people. Now I will shift over that to the effects here then. I think that they look good for the vampires. Having Herman hideous is interesting to me and it looks good. And then we do get a bit of this with Alda as well, but not very much. And they decided to go with really long vampire fangs, which you can tell they're just kind of fake teeth, but that's fine. Now we even get a really cool transformation scene at the end. The full moon aspect didn't really fit, and I mean obviously that's more for like werewolves, so I was kind of think that was interesting that they incorporated that a bit here. What I don't like is that we get the lack of wounds or blood on their necks when they get bit. Now this is a misstep for me. And there's also this minor issue with the cinematography is there's one scene that's supposed to be at night but it's way too bright. I'm assuming it was just filmed during the day and they're trying to play it off as night as this is filmed in black and white. But aside from that, I do think it's shot well. Now moving back to the story here for a minute is that we have these this troop of ballerina dancers that they wanted to use. Now we get a couple of times where they go in these like full out dance sequences as they're practicing. They can do some amazing things, but I just feel like it's filler and not necessarily needed, but I get why is this movie only runs about 85 minutes, so they were trying to get it to that runtime. Nobody really stood out for the acting here. It was hard to tell Remy and Gloriani apart at one point. They look very similar and wear similar clothes, so I did get a bit confused there, but they're both attractive and play their parts fine. Brandi is solid as his villainous vampire. Rava Oli is a bit sleazy. Now, Francesca is worried about him, and I think that they're establishing that for him to come back to Countess Alda. I can't fully blame him though as vampires have the ability to seduce and we can see that with Luisa as well. But I do think both of these guys here in Ravaoli and Torini are fine. Granani and the rest of the cast rounded this out as well in my opinion. As for the soundtrack, we don't really get a whole lot that stood out to me. I did think that the early on stalking scene was good. I think they used some kind of like jazz music there. 
And then while the women are practicing, that was solid for the music that we get with that, especially in the second time when it got creepier for the vampire theme dance. Other than that, I didn't really notice it. So like I said, I think this is a fine movie. I think that the parts of it that I've already kind of laid out here were good. The only gripes I really have is that there's some filler with the dance sequences. They're just really capitalizing that they have ballerinas in this movie. The lack of blood for the vampire attacks was a misstep. And this is just kind of boring outside of that for me, to be honest. Overall, though, I did enjoy this. And I still think this is over average for me. It's just lacking a bit for me to go higher than that. So I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then I watched Marabito from 2004. This is directed by Takashi Shimitsu. And this comes from the novel and also the screenplay from... Chaaki Konaki, and then this stars Shinya Tsukamoto, Tomomoto Miyashida, and Kazuhiro Nakahara. Now, this is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery film that is from Japan that is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a fear-obsessed freelance cameraman investigates an urban legend involving mysterious spirits that haunt the subways of Tokyo. Now, this is a movie that I heard about through podcasts, and it was one that I added to my list to check out some time ago, but I hadn't got around to it yet. Since I'm still working my way through the Summer Challenge series list for the 2000s from the podcast Under the Stairs, I'm finally giving this a go. But I was also kind of interested is that I do like the director Shimitsu. I've seen quite a few of his movies, so this is one of the ones that I hadn't gotten around to yet. So I was definitely glad to be able to check this off. Now, what I find interesting is that through the opening credits, the tagline to the title of Marabito is Stranger from Afar. Now, this movie is part found footage as we have Matsuuka, who is... Tsuka Moto is that freelance cameraman from the synopsis. He is filming himself going upstairs to the a roof of a building and then films across the way and then it shifts to over to filming an apartment where it looks like someone is staring out the window. He can't really make out the features though if they're male or female. Now he believes that this person is paranoid and most likely on drugs. This is probably fueled a little bit by that he sees Ariai Furoki, who is Nakahara, kill themselves. He was working with a documentary film crew while they were in the subway station and then he watches as this guy stabs himself in the eye now he keeps watching this and then think there's a deeper meaning as to why he did it and then he said something along the lines of he wasn't terrified of what he saw but he saw something because he was terrified and then this is kind of where he gets this weird thing where what he's watching on his monitors he thinks starts to move and kind of flash through images very quickly and then he even believes that he sees Faroki look at him when that is not what originally happened in the video but the question is did he really do that or not now he is convinced though that there's something in the tunnels under the subway that caused all of this and it should be pointed out that Masuoka has depression but then throws away his Prozac whatever he finds below the subway he wants to make sure that he's level-headed and then as he looks for the entrance of the tunnel he thinks he sees a pale white person walking around on all fours he follows but it is gone by the time he gets you know closer and then underneath the city are a series of tunnels and caverns. He finds a homeless person on there that makes him that tells him to beware of the Daros, and he believes in what he saw. Now the deeper that Masuoko goes, he finds things that get weirder. While he's down there, he finds Froki with a lantern, but then when he inquires, he blows it out, and this leaves him alone in the dark. He then comes out into a large cavern where he believes he's arrived at the Mountains of Madness. He explores and makes a discovery, which is a woman chained up in an aklav. Now he rescues her and brings her home, naming her F, and this is Miyashida. And then as he's trying to help her recover and teach her to be a normal human being, he becomes 
followed by a strange woman of Aya Fukumoto, who is Miho Ninagawa, and then getting strange calls from Mib, who is Sean Suguda. Things aren't as they seem, though, and the truth behind this nightmare is much worse. Now, just some interesting things that I found about this movie is that it was shot in eight days, and this was in between filming two different movies for Shimitsu, and that's pretty impressive. And then I will say, despite this rushed effort, he really gets some interesting aspects going in this movie here. Now, we have our main character of Matsuyoka. What interests me about him is that I see a bit of myself there. He's intrigued by what he sees out in the tunnels under the city of Tokyo, and I do have a thirst for knowledge, but not to the extent that he has to actually go looking for this stuff. I think this movie does an excellent job in establishing that he's mentally unstable from the beginning. He's off his medication, and witnessing this suicide has really messed him up. He's an unreliable narrator for sure. Now, there's the idea that there could be something living under the city here. As I said, this idea really intrigues me, even more that there are all these tunnels and whatnot that were built long time ago all over the world under cities and places like that. This movie is based off of a novel, which is something else that Shimitsu likes to do. There's a possibility that they're exploring the theory of the hollow earth. This is partially saying that this could be real and there's these massive caverns underneath the ground that we live on and that there could be civilizations of people living down there. Now we're getting images of the Daros, which appears to be from a science fiction novel, which is shortened for Detrimental Robots. And there's also vibes of Lovecraft here as he goes to the Mountains of Madness, which is something that he had written about and potentially elder gods living below us. We also get this weird turn when Matsuoka finds F and brings her home. I got that, you know, how could he get her up there since she's completely naked and kind of animalistic? Now, she doesn't speak at first, and we can't figure out, you know, a way to feed her. Now, things get weirder when Fukumoto is telling him that F is her daughter and wants to see her. And there's also this odd person of Mib who states he cannot keep her. And then the reveal makes a whole lot of sense to all these things as we learn later in the movie as this main character descends more and more into the madness. I think the acting is pretty good across the board. I think... Tashukamoto really helps to bring his role to life and what is interesting is that from the beginning I'm always leery of him but the more we learn the more that it builds on and I definitely think his portrayal works. Michiata is solid as playing this mute character. She acts quite animalistic which helps bring this to life. Now she moves around in a way that is creepy on top of that. Now we do get to see her nude so there's that as well. And aside from these two, I think the rest of the cast kind of rounds us out for what was needed. Nakahara is good as his wise old man who provides information to our main character. And then Ninagawa and Sugata also help to make, you know, this mystery kind of build and then being just creepy in their own kind of different ways. I think the effects were pretty solid. It is quite grainy and a lot of that comes from its partially found footage. Now I wouldn't call this, but it's kind of a half and half situation where we have found footage and then just normally filmed. The found footage aspects really help with a creepy feel of realism as we're part of it. And then as things go on, our main character doesn't really know what's real and what's not as he's seeing people that look blurry and have like staticky faces when he's not looking through the camera. So he doesn't know and it's kind of an interesting thing to kind of build on all of that there. But what I'll say is this movie really kind of gets its hooks into me early. I like some of the initial discoveries they're going for and then the mystery that kind of builds and pieces around everything from there. I think overall, this is a good movie, and one that I do want to see again now that I know how things play out, just to kind of see what I might have missed and what can kind of fill in some of the gaps there. I'm hovering between a 7.5 and an 8 on this movie, so I'm going to go with the higher one because I did enjoy this viewing experience. So that is where I'm going to rate Marabito at this time. And then I watched Amulet from this year of 2020. This is written and directed by Romello Gerard, and this stars Carla Jury, Alec... 
Sicario and Imelda Staunton. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates. This is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being an ex-soldier living homeless in London is offered a place to stay at a decaying house inhabited by a young woman and her dying mother. As he starts to fall for her, he cannot ignore his suspicion that something sinister here is going on. This is a movie that I heard about through podcasts. A few of them seemed to be seeing this, and there were some mixed reviews on it. I was in the mood for a movie that might have some social commentary, and this one seemed to fit the bill for me. Now to get into this, we are following uh, the character of Thomas, who is Sikernu. Who he's in two different time periods, and the first one is when he's a soldier and he is tasked to man a gate in the middle of the woods. Now he's alone in doing this, so he does get quite lonely, which in turn causes him to descend a bit into madness. He does try to create some normalcy for him, but then one day while he's digging in the woods, he discovers a trinket. It looks like a woman with an odd thing, like a shell behind her head. Now he ends up keeping this, and then not too long after, a woman is running towards his post, and she falls on the way where he has his gun trained on her, and he ends up taking her back to help nurse her back to health. And then the other time period that we're dealing with is him after he gets out of his military service, and he's homeless. Now, due to his nightmares at night, he has to tape his hands together, and he's trying to save up money by doing some undocumented construction work. Things take a turn when the place that he's staying in burns down. Now, he does get out, but ends up passing out, and this is where he's saved by Sister Claire, who is Staunton. Now, he ends up waking up in a hospital and then seeks her out afterwards. Now, he declines any more of her help, recovering, you know, just his items from her. There was no money that was found on him. So being down, he agrees to go with her, where he ends up going to the house where Magna, who is portrayed by Yuri, lives. Now, she is there with her sick mother, who is dying in the attic. The house is in disrepair, so the arrangement for him is that as long as he helps to fix it up, she will cook for him, and he has a place to stay. At first, he declines, thinking that Magna doesn't really want him to stay there. But he ends up seeing, though, that she has a bite mark on her arm, so he is a bit worried about her, and this changes his mind. Things are a bit rocky at first, but they end up settling in and get quite close together. But there might be something a little bit weirder going on than normal here. And he has to face his demons of his past as well as the ones inside the house as he learns the truth about Magna, her mother, and sister Claire. Now, some of the things that I kind of noticed about this movie is that his post seems to be extremely boring and taxing on his mind if you aren't strong. But it's interesting though is that at the time he was a philosophy student in college, he was given this post due to his mother as it kept him off the front lines, but then due to his loneliness, he does a horrific thing. He feels he needs to be punished, and it makes him susceptible to Sister Claire and what she is offering to help, you know, because he feels like this is a way to redeem himself. Then there's this little bit here about the amulet he finds in the woods. I don't really understand why he was digging and ends up discovering it. It just feels like it's a bit convenient for him, and, you know, that's fine with that aspect of it being how it's discovered. But I really like here, though, this artifact is from a religion older than Christianity, which reminds me of something that you would get with, like, The Exorcist. And since this movie has him needing to be a Christian with dealing with Sister Claire and what she is proposing, it makes for a reveal for something that ticks, you know, my box later in this movie. Now, I don't necessarily care for it, though, because it's a slow burn, and we get some cool imagery and whatnot. My problem is that I feel like we needed a little bit more explanation for things that we are getting. The movie decides to stick with just atmosphere and staying more vague, and I think that can be a good thing, but I feel like I needed just a little bit more personally to kind of tie everything in. What I will say, though, is good is the acting. I think that it's just solid across the board. Yuri is a good as this woman that is, you know, trying to pay her penance for the love and care that her mother has been giving to her. She tells us that her mother was beautiful and could have left her at any time. 
Instead, she stayed and gave up her life and pretty much raised her. And now she is forced to do the same. Sekernu is good with this character with having a troubled past. And it makes for our hero. But then the more that we learn about him, the more that we learn that he might not be as good of a person as we thought he was. And he's trying to get his redemption. Staunton is great as her role in this as well. I do feel the poster does give a little bit away for her character reveal, and I'm not going to diminish her performance, so if you can avoid the poster for this, I definitely would do that. I'd say the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. As for the effects, they're a little bit lighter in this department, but I don't really necessarily feel like we need too many of them. There's a creepy bat-like creatures that we get to see a few times. Thought that was done practically and I was on board there. The blood in this movie looks good and we get some interesting reveals and visuals that make us question things that we're seeing. Then near the end, things go a bit wild. They did well in bringing that to life where I don't feel like they look cheesy and kind of make sense for what they're going for. I have to give credit here to the cinematography as well. Something else I have to give credit to here is the soundtrack. That is probably one of the best parts of this movie. They use some different types of sounds of music that we get here that are brooding and creepy. That works there. And then aside from this, we are getting creature noises that are coming from the walls and ceilings. Some of it could be animals, but some of it, you know, makes you nervous as to what you're going to see. So together, I feel like this is strong in helping with the atmosphere that we get. So that's all I really wanted to delve into this movie here. I've kind of went over all the things that I liked. I just feel like it's a little bit long without giving us enough information for me to fully kind of understand what they're getting at here. Still think it's worth a viewing though, and I think it's above average, and I came in with a 7 out of 10 on this movie. And the final movie that I watched for this week is going to be Flatliners from 2017. This is directed by Niles Arden Oplev. And this comes from the story by Peter Fillard and the screenplay by Ben Ripley. This stars Ellen Page, Diego Luna, and Nina Dobrev. This is a drama, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller that is from the United States and Canada that is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being five medical students obsessed by what lies beyond the confines of life embark on a daring experiment by stopping their hearts for short periods, each triggers a near-death experience, giving them a first-hand account of the afterlife. Now for this remake, I wasn't sure if this was going to fall into the category of being a, like a remake sequel or just taking what they did in the first movie and just redoing it as, you know, for a more modern audience as a reimagining. Seeing Kiefer Sutherland was... In this one maybe question it more since you know he started in the original and i did end up watching this with jamie who had never heard of either version of it now really it's going to be me breaking down the characters here as we start with courtney who is Paige. she's driving her younger sister and they end up getting in a horrific car accident now courtney survives while her sister doesn't and then we jump nine years into the future where courtney is in medical school and i don't think the name gets revealed but through some things we realize that she is at one of the top schools in the country and then of this group, she is one of the better students, and she is planning on a secret experiment that she needs help to perform. Also in their group is Ray, who is Luna. Now, there's some competition between him and Marlo, who is Dobrev. Now, she thinks that he hates her, but we soon learn that that's not the case. Ray is like Courtney, is that he's just naturally better at being a you know med student slash like doctor type thing here, which ends up bothering Marlo. Now, he is a bit older as he was a firefighter before going into medical school. Now, another doctor here is Jamie, who is portrayed by James Norton. He is a trust fund kid that is more interested in partying and chasing girls than he is studying. And the final student we have is Sophia, who is Kiersey Clemens. Her mother is very demanding and actually moved into an apartment with her so she could go to this school. Now, we see how bossy she is and it has negative effects on her daughter. And she is panicking that she cannot remember everything that she needs to to succeed. 
Now, the whole crux of this movie is that Courtney enlists the aides of Sophia and Jamie. Now, what they're going to do is they're trying to map what happens when somebody passes away to see if they can prove near-death experiences. Now, this could also lead to answering the question if there is an afterlife. The problem, though, is that Jamie panics when it comes to reviving her, and Sophia isn't strong enough in her knowledge or technique to either. This causes them to bring Ray into it, and Marlo ends up following, seeing him rush away. Now, they successfully bring back Courtney, who feels great, a bit too great, though, to be perfectly honest, as if there is side effects, is that it does seem to rewire her brain so she can access everything that she's learned, even briefly, and can recall it at an instant. This causes her, you know, better and get some brownie points with Dr. Barry Wolfson, who is Sutherland. And then this causes the rest of the group to start wanting to go under, and they also have own, their own changes as well, but they're also seem to be haunted by things from their past. Now, just to confirm, though, this is not a sequel in any way. This is definitely like a remake or a reimagining of what the original movie was doing. The idea of the afterlife is something that people are always trying to figure out, and we see it in movies as well. I do like the taking a scientific approach to solving it as it makes for a good story even more so with the guilt that courtney is feeling as she is feels guilty for what she did to her sister the deeper we see into these characters we all have our own guilt that we're dealing with and that is normal so it's something that makes it where we can actually connect with these characters and then there's also the idea that you know being in a coma or having like a near-death experience could rewire your brain i know i've heard some scientific things on like television shows about this and then of course you know stephen king also explored this with the dead zone and i like how that it manifests in different ways where like courtney and sophia are tapping into everything that they've learned where jamie you know can make snap decisions that are just correct i don't feel like it goes too much into what marlo gets and then we also have that ray does not go under and then this also is kind of exploring in the medical profession, you know, the old boys club type thing where they do cover up for each other as there's an issue where Marlo administered a drug on a patient that ended up killing him. Now it's an accident, but I don't like that she was changing the record to protect herself, thinking that she's going to get in trouble for it. Now she probably would have gotten reprimanded, but I don't like that she falsifies records to not be punished, but then if she does come clean, I just don't feel like there's going to be enough punishment for her there from some of the things that we get in this movie. Another issue is I don't feel like the characters all seem to be the same age. Now, it does seem that Paige might be a little bit older when she went into medical school, so I can handle that. But then we have a problem where Norton and Clemens, there's a good age gap between the two of almost like 10 years. But we're supposed to assume that they're the same exact character. I mean, the same for Luna is that he's a little bit older, but we learn he went later. And I mean, Dobrev and Clemens look like they could be about the same age, but... There's just some things that I know personally that makes it where I don't necessarily feel like it works for me. The effects for this movie, there's not a whole lot of them. Now, there is some stuff where we're seeing, you know, these near-death experiences. So, I can... It's more fantastical. So, I mean, the CGI there is fine. There was one moment, though, where it just looked horrible. And I it just took me out of the movie completely. I would say overall, though, that the CGI and the effects we get are fine. And the cinematography is pretty solid. Now, I don't think this is a bad update to the original. It's just not necessarily warranted, in my opinion. This is lacking a little bit, but I still think this is an above average movie that I came in with a 6 out of 10 on. But that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is kick you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
Katie Collins. And she'll be eight years old. My first featured review here on this episode is going to be The Visitor from 1979. This went by the original title of Strindulum. This is directed by Julio Paradisi, who under the name of Michael J. Paradis. This is co-written, the screenplay, by Luciano Comici, who under the name of Lou Comici. And then he co-wrote this with Robert Mundi. And then the story was thought up by the director, as well as Ovido G. Santinas. This stars Melfer, Glenn Ford, and Lance Henriksen, along with John Houston, Joanne Nall, Sam Peckinpah, Shelley Winters, Paige Connor, J.A. Townsend, Joe Dorsey, Johnny Popwell, Wallace Wilkinson, Steve Summers, Lou Walker, and Walter Gordon Sr. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from Italy that is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. And then our synopsis here is the soul of a young girl with telekinetic powers becomes a prize in a fight between forces of God and the devil. Now this is another movie that I'd never heard of until I was looking for some horror movies in the Italian Horror Month. And then I did actually hear about this on a podcast. I'm assuming it was a 22 Shots of Moods and Horror a couple of years ago, but I just completely forgot that they had brought it up. Now, this is the highest rated one on Letterboxd that I had never seen, so I was intrigued to check it out. Aside from that, I came in pretty blind, not knowing what it was about. And then before I kind of jump into that, I'm going to have just some notes here about the people that, you know, kind of brought this to us. The director of Par DC helmed five films. This is the only one in horror much along with the story as well. He has seven credits there, but this is the only horror one. Asantis helped him come up with the story, much like Paradisi. He has seven writing credits, but he actually has quite a few in the genre. He did the story and screenplay for Beyond the Door in 1974 first. Then he did Madhouse under a pseudonym in 1981. The same year he did uncredited work on Piranha 2, The Spawning. And then his last writing credit was Red Riding Hood from 2003, and he did that under his pseudonym as well. The actual screenplay was co-written between Luciano Comici, with this being his only horror credit. He did have 13 writing credits on top of that, though, outside of the genre. And then Moody helped him, but he only had six credits, and this is the only one in horror again. Now, the cast is done alphabetically, so I'm just going to do the first three that appeared, and the first one is Ferrer. His name came up earlier in this episode with Blood and Roses, which was actually his first horror film that he was ever in. He did have 108 acting credits. Now, 10 of them are in horror, 
and I've only ever seen him in Pajama Girl Case, Wait Until Dark, The Fall of Roman Empire, Eaten Alive, and Nightmare City, according to what I've rated on IMDb. But not to be outdone is Glenn Ford, who had 111 acting credits. Only three of them were in genre, and it looks like they were later in his career. This was his first, and then he followed it up with Day of Resurrection, which might have went under the alternate title of Virus at some point, from the following year. And then he was in Happy Birthday to Me the year after that. And I've also seen him in Guadalcanal Diary and Black Book Jungle. Neither of those are horror movies, though. Then finally, we have Lance Henriksen. He has a whopping 259 acting credits. Been in a lot in horror with 80. His first was Mansion of the Doomed in 76. And as I said, he's still acting. And I've seen him in the Hannibal TV series, Aliens, Damien the Omen 2, The Pit and the Pendulum, Near Dark, Mom and Dad, The Terminator, House, Scream 3, and Pumpkinhead, just to name a few of them that I've rated on IMDb. Now to get in this movie, we start this off with an odd showdown between Jersey Kolowoskitz, who is Houston, and a figure in a black cloak. It looks to be on a foreign planet in a desert as the figure is approaching is that there's a brilliant sun behind them. There are these other meteorological things that are happening that don't look like they would happen on Earth. It then starts to snow as both sides are using what I'm assuming telepathic powers from their performances. Whatever happens though, this smaller entity reveals itself to have like snow all over its face and it looks very demonic. But then it shifts us over to Jesus Christ, who is an uncredited performance by Franco Nero, telling the background story to all of these events that led us up to where we are now, to these bald-headed children. He is speaking of a villain named Santine. He was captured by their captain at the time of Yawin. He then escaped, though, to Earth, where he mated with Earth women, spreading his power down to their offspring. Jersey enters while he is speaking and informs them that there is a Katie Collins, who is portrayed by Paige Connor, that needs to be dealt with on Earth. He is going to handle it, and then when he arrives, he goes up to a roof of an abandoned building where he's working with bald-headed adults to start on his mission. Now, we're in Atlanta, Georgia at a professional basketball game. The owner of the team is Raymond Armstead, who is Henriksen. When asked where he gets his money, he dodges the question. With him is his girlfriend of Barbara Collins, who is Nail. Also here is her daughter of Katie. Now we see that she might have some telekinetic powers that come into play at the end of this basketball game. Now afterwards, Barbara goes home with Ray and he asks her to marry him again. She refuses stating that she doesn't want to remarry and doesn't want any more children. This upsets him, but she is strong-willed. She then goes home where Katie makes a horrible statement about wanting to murder her babysitter. But this daughter is also quite fond of Ray as well. So we do see she does have a little bit of a sweet side. Then we see, though, he has ulterior motives. Ray goes to see Dr. Walker, who is fairer, who takes him to a boardroom full of people. We then learn he has been given all of this money and power that he has, but his mission is to marry and impregnate Barbara. They need her to have more children that are like Katie. There is then an accident that happens to help Ray, which causes Barbara to become paralyzed. She resists still, though, and wants her freedom. She is given a new nanny by an agency that is Jane Phillips, portrayed by... Shelly Winters, and then along with Jersey, they try to help her from the evil plans of Dr. Walker, and they will stop at nothing to fulfill their mission, and that's what we get kind of, you know, the rest of this movie, and there's a little bit more moving elements, which I'll kind of delve into here in a minute, but that is pretty much the crux of everything that is going down. Now, this is really the gist of the story for this movie. When things were all said and done, it really doesn't have the most complex story that we're working with here. It is sitting down to... It is sitting down to write and record this and I realized that there is a bit more depth that we're working with here that I do appreciate. I think I'll start with the background story 
here, which we are, you know, taking the basic idea of Christianity and making it sci-fi based. The Yahweh we learn about in the beginning is God. Santine is Satan, and their battle led to him being captured. He then went to Earth after he escaped, where he is corrupting mankind. Jesus probably went there at some point in handling things before going to heaven, which is another planet. What else is interesting here is that we have Barbara. She was married to Dr. Sam Collins, who is Peckinpah. They divorce, but when she's in trouble, she goes back to him. The social commentary here involves abortions, while also looking at Barbara being raped and forced to have a child that she doesn't want. It is interesting in having our villain be Katie as well. She's just a child, but they do well in her being you know, nasty and foul-mouthed, where we don't necessarily see her as a child when she's acting this way. I also like that she has a hawk, like, eagle. I'm not really sure which type of bird it actually is as a pet. This goes back to a story that Jesus was relaying early on, that there were these birds that were created to help find Santine, and then he employed eagles to help destroy, and I think he actually turned himself into one and helped to destroy these birds that are looking for him. But I feel like next year I should take this to the acting. We have this really interesting and good cast. I like Ferrer as the villain. He works well there, as well as Henriksen, who's another great villain. Nail is quite attractive, and I like seeing what she has to deal with here throughout this movie. It builds growth for where she needs to end up. And we also have legends in filmmaking with the actor of Glenn Ford as Detective Jake Durham. And we have Houston. He's playing this wise old man very well. And we also have Peck and Paul and Winters. The latter plays an odd housekeeper that doesn't necessarily fit, but I liked her performance still. She's just a great actress overall. I also really liked what Connor did. She plays this bratty girl well. What I think helps is how it is written. I will say that no one really stands out or turns in like a great performance, but as a whole, it all works for me. Now from here I'll go to the effects, and I'll be honest, there were some really cheesy ones that were being done with like early computer effects. I do have a soft spot for that though, as this is mostly done, you know, more with the sci-fi elements like being on other planets, so I can be forgiving there. I don't think those look bad, but the lack of technology is something that I can't necessarily hold against it either. Now there are some good practical effects for sure, especially with some of the bird attack scenes. Cinematography was also well done, but if I do have some negatives for this movie, it would be that it runs too long. The 108 minute runtime doesn't seem to be needed. The story isn't that complex with what they're like presenting to us. It's more of things that are going on underneath. I think that has a good 15 minutes or so that could be trimmed here to tighten it up, but I did find myself bored during a longer runtime in my opinion, that if it would have been trimmed up, I think it would have held my attention better. Another gripe as well would be the soundtrack. I love the 80s synth sound, but not for this movie. It really didn't fit for what they were going for. I think it needed to be a bit more brooding, as this felt like it was taken more from like a 1970s Italian action movie. I do enjoy those soundtracks, but it doesn't necessarily fit here for me. So that's all I really wanted to delve into with this movie. I do have a little bit of trivia here, which according to an interview with Paige Connor on the Code Red DVD, Shelley Winters smacked her around several times before actually, you know, for rehearsing and for filming a key confrontation scene with her. Peck and Paul had trouble remembering his lines. Because of the difficulties here with his dialogue, his voice was dubbed over by another actor, and he only actually worked on the film for one day. Paige Connor wears a bald cap for a scene in the greenhouse. All the other kids in the greenhouse scenes have their heads shaved. Connor also had trouble saying harsh profanity to Ford in her big confrontation scene with him. According to Henriksen, the cast agreed to this movie for a free trip to Italy. He dislikes this movie, calling it a real turkey. The bedroom scene between Barbara and Raymond was totally improvised. And then during the ice skating sequence, Houston is shown going down a large staircase. This staircase is actually the world's longest freestanding escalator. It usually only goes up, so during the film it had to be turned off so he could walk down it. 
then as of 2019, the same escalator can be ridden on the CNN headquarters tour in Atlanta, Georgia, which makes sense because that is where some of this was actually filmed. So then just to close this out, I think this movie is interesting with its take on a more classic good versus evil story. They're taking elements from the Bible and then making them more sci-fi works for me. It feels like something that could be an explanation to them as well if you're you know, not necessarily following religion itself. There's a really good cast of legends and lesser known actors here that worked for me. Not all the effects are good, but I did have a soft spot for some of them due to the era. My only gripes here is the length of the movie and the soundtrack doesn't necessarily fit for what they're getting here. Overall though, I still enjoyed this and come in with this being just over average for me. It is just lacking a bit for me to go higher. So I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is I'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that. So I'm going to kick you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Судя по всему, на орбите произошел некий инцидент. От меня это что требуется? Семирадов, моя фамилия, требуется ваша консультация. Зачем они меня не задержат? Можете объяснить? And for my second featured review on this episode, it's going to be, as I said, not something from Italy, unfortunately, but I did find something I think pairs up pretty nicely with The Visitor of Sputnik from 2020. This is directed by Igor Abramenko, and this is co-written between Oleg Melovichenko and Andrei Zolotarov. This stars Oksana Akinshina, Fedor Bondarchuk, Pator Fedorov. And then we also have Anton Veselovit, Aleski Demidov, Anna Nazarova, Alexander Mazarev, Elbrek Zander, Vitaliv Kornovenko, and Vazislav Votov. And I do apologize if I butchered any of those names. I, you know, tried my best here. But this is a drama horror sci-fi thriller that is from Russia. And it is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb. 
and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the lone survivor of an agnetic spaceship incident hasn't returned back home alone. Hiding inside his body is a dangerous creature. Now, this is a film that I heard about earlier this year. Since I'm a fan of sci-fi horror films, I was pretty intrigued. The director was on a podcast and was interviewed, so that gave me some insight into this movie without, you know, spoiling anything. And then, as I said, I thought this would pair pretty nicely with this kind of episode that I already had for an Italian horror film, even though, as I said, this isn't from Italy. But then some notes on some of the people in the movie first. The director of Abramenko is new to the scene with only three directing credits, and this is the only one he has in horror so far. Melovichinko is a little bit more credits to his name with 29 in writing, and this is his only horror film thus far. Then he co-wrote this with Zolo Tarev, who has 18 credits. Again, this is the only one in horror, but it does seem that they don't make a lot of horror films like this in Russia, so that could also be a part of it. Then for the actors, we have Enkinshina, who has 36 acting credits at this time. Of those, three have been in horror. Her first was Moscow Zero, which I'm pretty sure I saw back in college in 20 in 2006. I think this is one of the ones that was on like sci-fi or something like that, and I think I recorded it and gave it a viewing. Then she went away from the genre until 2019 when she was in Quiet Comes the Dawn and now this movie. And then there's Bondarachuk, who has 75 acting credits. But oddly enough, this is the only horror film that he was done, so I'm glad he's kind of come over to this one, and I will get into his performance a little bit later. Then we end this off here with Fyodov, and he has 53 credits as an actor. Now, four of them have been in horror. His first one was a movie called The Phobos in 2010. I haven't seen that one or really heard of it, but he was in The Darkest Hour the next year, which I did see him there. And then he's going to be in a TV series coming up here called Dead Mountain, The Dilovtov Pass Incident. So then to get into this movie, we start this off with a couple of cosmonauts on their shuttle back in what I believe is 1986. The one that seems to be in charge is Konstantin Vezhiznevkov, who is Fyodorov. And then with him is Kirill Averchenko, who is Demidov. They're singing songs and playing with some of their personal items as they prepare to disengage and return to Earth. They make a terrifying discovery when a shadow moves past the window, and it sounds like something is trying to get in. They then crash land in Kazakhstan, where we have Edverchenko is missing a portion of his head from what looks like a bite or just something from the, you know, crash having removed that part of it. But then Konstantin seems to have survived, but his eyes have a black look to him as he screams. They then take us to Tatiana Kilimova, who is Akashina. She is brought before a board as it seems like she did a risky treatment on a patient and now she's at risk of losing her position and from what I gather, the ability to perform medicine altogether. All she has to do is admit her fault, but she refuses to do this as she thinks what she did has the best intentions in mind for her patient. Now watching this is Colonel Semerovdov, who is Bondarchuk. After it is over, he approaches her about a top secret research that he wants her to participate in. She can say no, but he wants her to come with him at least just to give her assessment. Now, when she arrives in this remote location, the colonel explains the reason for the isolation. We learn later that they have been given a cover story to the news about what happened with this spaceship. They claim that everything went good and the two cosmonauts are being held for routine testing. Actually, though, Constantine came back with something else. In charge of the test is Jan Regal, who is... Vazislev, and he doesn't really like Tatiana being there as he feels threatened and he believes that he's on pace to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Now, we see that she doesn't necessarily play by the rules and goes in to interview Constantine, who is interested when he sees her. 
Her assessment is that he's dealing with PTSD and that she isn't needed here. Now the colonel doesn't give her all the information. He brings her back that night and we see more of the truth. There is this parasitic creature living inside of him. It comes out every few nights and while it does, Constantine goes into a coma. She changes her mind and decides to stay. Her goal is to separate the two, but the more that she looks into it, it might be less of a parasite and more of a symbiotic relationship. And there is much more that the colonel isn't sharing with her as well. Now that's all I want to do for my recap of the movies. I feel like that gets you up to speed here. Now to take away some of my thoughts for this is that we have an interesting setup here. Part of the interview was stating that they decided to set this in 1980. Now that's with the director. One easy thing is that the technology is a bit easier to use here, but we're also putting this in the Soviet Union. I really got vibes of Citizen X here, where we're seeing how ineffective the government was working because there's so many things that you have to cover up and then the lies that are being fed to keep it a secret as you can't show any sort of failure. Now the colonel being a military man is looking towards weaponizing this creature which makes a whole lot of sense. I feel if this would have happened during the arms race in the United States they probably would have done the same thing. So that's where I'm getting at is that we have things like alien here where we have this creature and they want to you know use it as a weapon as we're in the middle of the cold war. Going from here though I like the characters that we're working with. We don't necessarily know what to believe, but Tatiana will say or reveal things to get reactions out of people. Now, she is quite smart about it and sometimes is pretty dead on as I like to see that she is that observant about things and can piece things together like that. Because I like to think that that's how I kind of move and work around things like that in my own personal life. Now, she is brought here though since she did this radical treatment and the Colonel knows that if someone can solve what to do here, it is her. And he also knows that she'll go to great lengths to try to find the answer. I'm glad to see they went with a woman for this role as well. Now, the Colonel, though, is an interesting character here as well. He really embodies the Soviet Union mentality that really only revealing what you have to and what really needs to be known. He's a cold, calculating man, and it works. And there's also Jan, who is only looking out for himself. He never does anything unless he can see the benefit to be gained. Now, Tatiana sees this and can manipulate him when needed. What I will say, though, is that Jan starts out as a jerk, but I like where he ends up. And another character I really need to break down is Constantine. He is selected by this creature, and the movie gives us some interesting reasons why. The major one that I see is his will to survive. He has his mother that without him has no one. And he might also have a son that he may or may not know about that is in an orphanage. Now Tatiana and him have interesting back and forth conversations where you don't always know what is real and what's not. There could be a medical reason as well which I'll shift over to next, which is that of the creature. From what I remember, I think they went practical as much as they could. I still feel there's probably some CGI here, but I'm not going to lie to you, it's pretty seamless. I will give a slight spoiler here, but this creature eats humans. The movie gives a bit more specific as to what part of the human body it needs and what chemical but it is creepy and wants us to be scared of it before it eats us because that makes it so much better which kind of reminds me of Dr. Sleep and with what the True Knot are doing with the steam. Now there is a certain chemical it needs as I said and something here that comes into play as to why Constantine was chosen over Everchenko. I'm also a fan of comic book characters so this one reminded me a little bit of Venom in that they're both symbiotes and then in this movie obviously we're getting the symbiotic relationship with Constantine. Aside from the creature effects, I think the movie is shot very well. I've already said that I like the time period it is set. It does feel like with all the technology we're seeing, but it also, I have to give it credit here, is it has a timeless feel as it's not ramming down our throat that we're in the 80s. That is something that bodes well for me that, you know, we still get the era that it's set in, but it also doesn't necessarily, it feels like it could also take place nowadays because a lot of it doesn't rely necessarily on technology. 
Now, since I've broken down the characters, I'll give my thoughts on the acting here next. I think Akashina is really good as our lead. I like the character that she portrays, and I think it fits her well. Botterchuk is the same. He is a villain without being one the whole time. For a good portion of it, he feels like he's just adhering to the rules of his country, but we also see that he needs the control as well. Fyrodolf has a good look for this cosmonaut, and his performance was good as well. Vazasleev works well as his weasel guy that we're also having good growth where he ends up. And then Demidov and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Quickly, I wanted to go over the soundtrack. I really like how epic it gets for like the more climatic scenes, and that works. For me, it really feels like something you'd feel inside if you learn like an alien like this existed. It is good that it's like kind of more of an epic sounding and it's for the more exciting scenes that we get this type of music and that really helps to build that feel up. Aside from that, I think the score fits for what was needed. But if I do have any gripe here, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately, this movie does feel like it runs a bit long. There are aspects that I feel like we do need. The scientific process needs to be fleshed out, and that works for me to learn more about the creature. The problem is I don't know if we need 113 minutes runtime of that. It takes a while after the initial shock of seeing the monster until the climax, until it gets kind of exciting again. So I feel like they probably could have cut like 10 minutes around there to made this, and it would have run a little bit tighter for me. So before I close this out, I did find a little bit of trivia here is that Sputnik is a word associated with space exploration as it was the name of the first artificial satellite put into orbit around the Earth. It's also a Russian word for companion or fellow traveler, alluding to the companion that the commander brings along. Now, when first interviewed, Constantine tells the doctors that feeble-minded people are not sent to space and therefore it's not likely to be hypnotized. The doctor simply accepts it. In reality, contrary to popular belief, no one can be hypnotized unwillingly or, un or forcibly as hypnosis is a conscious effort and requires focused mental discipline by the patient. Actually, strong-minded and focused people are ideal candidates for hypnotic regression techniques, which is kind of an interesting thing there. So just to end this, I really enjoyed this movie. I'm a fan of these sci-fi horror movies, and I like the setting being that this is in the past without beating us over the head with it. It really makes a whole lot of sense for a Russian movie like this to have it been in the Soviet Union with their stricter rules back then. The acting is strong across the board. I really like what the concepts of the movie is exploring with learning about this creature, and the more that we do, the more horrific it becomes. The effects were on point, and I think the soundtrack for the exciting scenes works as well. If I do have any gripes, just a bit too long and bogged it down a bit in the middle. With that said, though, I still found this to be a good movie overall, and I would say it's worth a viewing. What I will warn you, though, is I watched it in Russian with the subtitles on, so if that's a problem, I would avoid this. If not, and you like sci-fi horror movies, especially ones with aliens, I would definitely give this a viewing. So I thought this came in for me with about an 8 out of 10 rating. So I'm not going to do any spoilers or anything like that, but I, what I am going to do, though, is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. What a woman you are. Peppina, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? Find yourself another house to run around and play. You scare my girl, you eat my cheese, you even drink my wine. I've tried so hard to catch you, but you trick me all the time. Ci sta l'usura, ci è la basciusella, Ogni sera che l'esce quando la casa è scura In domenica da cucina balla sul sul Ma parlo malandrina pure la gatta c'ha paura Peppino sul cielo mi ha fatto scomparire Mannaggio sul cielo a casa e n'ha da io Stasera in da cucina non può che vina già lassà 
e quando sempre ha cappettina giangappà No, I'm a Calabrasian nut The other night I called my girl I asked her could we meet I said let's go to my house We could have a bite to eat And as we walked in through the door She screamed at what she saw There was little Peppino Doing a cha-cha on the floor Peppino zuna gilla Ma fatta scumbari Manna giù zuna gilla A casa in addai Stasina in da cucina Una pochevina già la sa e quando si imbriaga Peppino Giangappà. Ma come venivo? A schifio? If I ever catch I'm gonna throw you right in a bagnarò. Quella non ci piace un formaggio americano. Quella va trovando un po' per mangiare. Se fatta giatta giatta costa vita buona. E quando quella cammina pare proprio in un calandone. Peppino sulle cille mi ha fatto scomparire, mannaggia sulle cille a casa in Addaì, stasera in da cucina un po' che vino già la sa, e quando si imbriaga Peppino già andrà a fare. Luigi, I got a present for you. Ah, you're a nice man. Close your eyes, and put your hands in the box. Oh, mannaggia sulle cille mi ha scasciato la mano, a mousetrap. I would like to welcome you back one last time here as I close out on episode number 56 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's at Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I'm David OSU. And I will have all of the links in the show notes for any of those there. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, that's at David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile. The last thing I would ask for, if you could do, if you could go ahead and subscribe to whatever podcasting device you're listening to, that would be greatly appreciated. And also, if you can go ahead and rate and review on that as well, just so I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like. And you, you could also send me anything like that through the email. You could also send it to me through a private message on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those things. Any of the other ones, though, you can definitely do that. And if you'd like anything to be read on the show, you can go ahead and do it through any of those venues as I will be, you know, do that. And if you don't want me to read it, just let me know there as well. Now, what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, for the next episode, since it's going to be the first one for December, I am going to jump over to doing, once again, like I did last year, my... I'm going to try to pair up some films that are Christmas, wintery kind of themed, as well as I'm also going to be watching as many 2020 releases as I can. I'm going to do some rewatches as well as watch as many new ones as I can, just so I can shore up my you know, year-end list for this year. But that is all I really kind of wanted to go over through here. And so in closing, what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time as well. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 